for leading us into God's presence. That was awesome. You know, the song we just sang, it occurred to me as we were singing it that that really is the heart of the prodigal son who's come to his senses and who knows he's completely unworthy. You know, we've been studying now for some weeks this uh, um, the th- stories in Luke 15, and we're going to be reading a section of Scripture uh, in just a moment. But um, only when you know your own personal unworthiness and your complete acceptance by God because of Jesus can you sing those things. As we're singing, Jesus Christ, you are my one desire. It occurs to me, yeah, boy, I wish that was true of me all the time. But too much of the time, it's not true. But I'll tell you when it is true. <laughs> it is true when I really am aware of how I'm loved and how I'm forgiven and, um, and of how unworthy I am of that. That's, that's when my heart can sing those words and, and really mean it. Um, we're going to be looking in a moment at the other brother. But before we do that, if you've got your Bibles, you can turn to Luke chapter 15. Um, and we're going to be finishing our study of this chapter this morning. Luke chapter 15, verse 25. This is the last part of, these, of this story. Um, that typically gets called the parable of the lost son or the prodigal son. And in verse 25, we, it says, Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. And when he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. And so he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Well, your brother has come, he replied. And your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back, safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. And so his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. And yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you are always with me, and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad, because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. It's the word of God. Pray with me. Father, would you uh, guide us as we reflect together? as we prepare to come to this table and celebrate what Jesus has done for us, would you speak to us and teach us? Would you help us grasp the significance and the meaning of this text that we study? And uh, God, may it stay with us. Not just be something we hear this morning, but something that really does stay with us and shapes us and changes us. For we ask it in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen? So as I said, we have been studying these stories now for some time. Some of you are saying, amen, we're moving on. Okay. Shame on you. Um, Last week, uh, we started looking specifically at the elder brother. In fact, we noted that the climax of this story really isn't the the prodigal son coming home. The climax of this story is the dialogue that takes place between the father and the elder brother at the very end of the story. I said also last week that this chapter is much less about prodigals and much more about Pharisees. That's really why Jesus is telling this story. Jesus is challenging the Pharisees' religious way of thinking. You understand the Pharisees were professional religious people. I mean, they had the law learned. They had it memorized. They could quote it to you. And uh, they lived it better than anybody else was living it. So much so that when people saw the Pharisees walking uh, obediently in their religion, it was like, yeah, I'll never be able to do that. You know, look how good they obey, you see. And so Jesus 
wanted to challenge the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. They're challenged. He wanted to challenge them about their view of God. He wanted to challenge them about their own sense of goodness. And he wanted to challenge them about the way in which they went about trying to relate to God. Uh, we saw in the story earlier when we were reading um, uh, weeks past about the younger brother. The younger brother comes to his father and says, Father, you know, I don't need you. I don't really want you. What I do want is my inheritance. I can make my own decisions. I can guide my own life. I can, I can take care of myself. And then he takes off to a foreign land, we're told. And when that road comes to an end, he finds himself in famine. He finds himself in ruin. And it's all right there in his face. It's simply undeniable. He can't even feed himself. It's a, a very, very difficult thing for him to deny what a mess he has made. Uh, how badly he has blown it. I mean, he had really wronged his family, and in particular, he had wronged his father. He needed help. At this particular point, when he comes to his senses, he needed a lot of help. He was desperate. Uh, and that's when it began to dawn on him that his father had actually, the whole, the whole time in dealing with him, had been amazingly patient and amazingly kind, amazingly loving, amazingly forgiving, so much so that he decided to go home and see if his dad would take him back as a hired servant, not as a son, but just as a hired servant, because he knew with the graciousness of his father, he'd be better off as a hired servant than not. But with the elder brother, as we have begun to see, it's very different. It's actually the elder brother's goodness that hides the fact that he too is very alienated from his father. Uh, he too really just wants what the father has, not really a relationship with the father. And I said this some weeks ago, it bears repeating that um, the essence of sin is not rule breaking. You see, it's not about religion and keeping laws and obeying. The essence of sin is really all about not wanting a relationship with the father. That's the essence of sin. It's wanting to do life without him, uh, on our own, without his wisdom, without his input, without his guidance. It's thinking, yeah, I don't really need you. I've got this. I can make my own decisions, do my own thing. I, I don't need you. And both of these sons in their heart are thinking really the same thing. They express it differently, but they're thinking the same thing. Neither one wants the father. Neither one really gets the father. They don't understand the father. The prodigal makes that clear by leaving. The elder brother makes it clear by the way he stays home and works the estate. Uh, notice, too, that as he stays home and works that estate, he's not very happy. Not one bit of that. He's actually quite resentful. He doesn't feel that he's getting what he deserves, you see. He doesn't really like his life. In fact, he describes it in verse 29 this way. He describes it as slaving and following orders. That's the life of the elder brother. That's the life at home as he sees it, slaving and following orders. Not much joy in that. Really no relationship in that whatsoever with the father. And in Jesus' story, we've noted too that the prodigal at that certain point in time came to his senses and comes home. But with the elder brother, as we've noted too, we don't know if he ever comes up to the house to the party. We just don't know what he does. You know, perhaps he continues to live uh, lonely and isolated, disconnected, and sanctimonious, and judgmental. Maybe that's what he does. Uh, hopefully, he, he changes. 
Maybe he eventually realizes that he too has taken the Father for granted all this time. Maybe he gets to a point where he understands that he has never understood the Father. And he understands that he needs the Father's forgiveness and the Father's grace as much as his younger brother because he hasn't exactly been the greatest son either. Not in terms of relationship. And so he uses his rule-keeping goodness as a weapon, really, in the battle of his struggle with his father. Uh, He says, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders, and yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. What he's saying is, he's saying, what the heck? What are you doing, Dad? Not again. I mean, here you go, screwing things up again. This son of yours, who you should be punishing, comes home and you give him a robe and you embrace him and you give him a kiss. This son of yours should have been here slaving away with me and obeying orders. But instead he goes off and he squanders the estate, my estate, I might add, what I've been earning this whole time that I've been with you. You see, the elder brother goes back to that thing we've talked about a bit, this thing of a moral model of living his life. Basically where he says, you know, I'm good. Look at me, I'm slaving away. I'm I'm obeying orders. My brother, though, he's bad. I deserve something better than what my brother gets. That's for certain. And he's using his moral goodness to say, you owe me. That's what he says to you. You owe me. You can't treat me this way. I deserve better. And frankly, uh, until the Holy Spirit actually comes into a person's heart, our hearts, and changes us, and enables us to see who we are, what we really are, this is kind of how all of us think. Whether you're an atheist, or whether you're a Christian, or whether you're some other version in between, right? We tend to think, you know, I'm good, I deserve what I've got, uh, if not more, right? That's, that's the truth about me. But you, you are not so good. Uh, and you are why the world is in such a mess. It's your fault. I deserve the good life. You, not so much. And it's that judgmental attitude where I'm always comparing. Always pitting myself against others. Always judging. You know, the Christian uh, will sometimes think to themselves, I'll think, you know, you know, put my faith in God. I went forward at a meeting. I I go to church for God and I give God some money once in a while. God owes me. I can't tell you how many conversations I have had with folks, good church-going folks over the years who get to a place in life where for whatever reason they experience some kind of catastrophe. Uh, Something comes into their life that they did not expect. Something they can't control. Something they can't really fix. Something that scares them to death. And they become angry with God. Uh, Why would he let this happen to me? You know, is the underlying question. I obey his orders. I slave for him. This is not what I deserve. And here's the deal. When your goodness becomes a way of leveraging God, when you use your goodness to demand what you think are your rights, You're acting exactly like the elder brother. Exactly. In fact, that's what what we could call elder, the elder brother uh, syndrome or elder brotherism. 
And guess what? When you act that way, you'll be just as miserable as he was. You'll be alienated from the heart of the Father, alienated from the embrace of the Father, alienated from the kiss of the Father. You just won't get the Father. And this is why when you become a follower of Jesus, you really need to repent of both your badness, like the prodigal, and the goodness that you think you have, like the elder brother. You need to understand that even your goodness is, it's frankly just like the prophet Isaiah said, it's like filthy rags. That's just the truth about who we really are and the truth about our good deeds. Um, So when I stand up here and preach and when I pastor or do pastor kinds of things, I am trusting in God to use me. I ask him to do that without fail. I pray that his will will be done through whatever energy, whatever effort I bring to preaching or pastoring or whatever it is. But I also know that right in the middle of my so-called good works is me. Sinful me, messing stuff up, caring more about me and less about you and less about God than I should. In other words, my good works really are filthy rags. I never quite get anything really right. Uh, And so I need to repent of my badness, to be sure. There's plenty of that. But I also need to repent of my goodness. If I only repent of my badness, the stuff that I do that is obviously broken and obviously wrong, I'll very quickly think that, uh, uh, kind of drift into the notion that my goodness really merits something. I mean, I know I'm better than all of you. I mean, I've got good works that are more than you have, I'm pretty sure, see? And I'll start thinking my goodness merits something. You know, and then I start thinking that if I'm really good, if I try really hard, uh, if I'm a good husband, If I'm a good wife, if I'm a good son, a good daughter, a good parent, a good pastor, if I do all of these things well, well, you know what? God owes me. And then he should do for me what I want him to do. I should be living the dream. Things should be going great in my life. And that, friends, is really the quintessential moral model. That is religion in a nutshell. And that is elder brotherism as well. You know what the symptoms of the elder brother are? The symptoms of elder brotherism, you know what they are? Well, I'm going to tell you. That's the rest of the message, so good. <clears throat> One symptom of elder brotherism is anger. Anger. Notice the brother is very angry about how his life is going in this story. <clears throat> Excuse me. He's comparing himself to others. Did you notice that? He says, I never got a goat, but my brother got a calf He's keeping score. Who gets a goat? Who gets a calf? Who gets nothing? There's all kinds of anger, all kinds of comparison just below the surface of this elder brother's life. He says, you know, other people are having a better time than me. Who don't deserve it, I might add. That's the elder brotherism. He feels he's getting a bum deal from the father and he can't for the life of him figure out why. Look at the good stuff I do. Friends, this kind of thinking too is so broken and so debilitating it'll make it impossible for you to ever do what the apostle paul talks about in the letter that he writes to the christians in rome the apostle paul says rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn you know what elder brotherism does elder brotherism rejoices with those who mourn because dad gummit you're getting what you deserve you see so i'm kind of happy to see you suffering And elder brotherism also mourns with those who rejoice. Because you know what? You're not getting what you deserve. It's too good for you. I should be getting that. That's really the heart of elder brotherism. 
And here's the deal. Jesus' gospel says that the truth about us is that we, all of us, everyone in this room, are terrible, more than we know, terrible sinners. That's the bad news. But Jesus' gospel also says that you and I are terribly valuable to the Heavenly Father. And that's the good news. Our value does not depend on our badness or, for that matter, on our goodness. Our value comes from the Heavenly Father. We matter because He made us. We matter and we are beautiful to Him. I mean, imagine, we are beautiful to Him. Uh, We matter because He loves us. He has chosen to give us what we have not earned, but what we desperately need. Think about that. He's chosen to give us what we have not earned. Jesus has earned it for us, but it's what we desperately need. And when I understand that, and when I live in that, when I embrace that and soak that in, that frees me up from having to compare and judge and perform. It frees me up to live in a place of peace, a place of gratitude. We sang about it earlier. Uh, Jesus' gospel, you understand, is the only antidote to religion and to moralism. It's unmerited favor, unmerited grace. It's the only antidote. And if we are living in the gospel, understand, when things in our life aren't exactly going the way we want them to go, or, God forbid, something really awful is happening in our life, a catastrophe has come, we don't accuse the Father, we don't resent the Father, we know that bad things happen in a broken, bad world usually for reasons we can't even explain. We don't often know. In fact, I would say we rarely know why difficulties come into our life. And uh, we also know that Jesus' mission is to overcome bad things in the world and one day remake the world so that no bad things happen whatsoever. Evil will be entirely overcome. That is Jesus' mission. Now, just an aside here. This is not part of the sermon. You know, bad things happen for all kinds of reasons in the world, in our lives. Sometimes they happen because of our own dumb decisions, don't they? You run a red light and a car runs into you. Bad, dumb decision, consequences, right? Sometimes bad things happen to us because of other people's dumb decisions. They run a red light and boom, they hit you in the side. It wasn't your fault, it just happened. Some things too, sometimes cosmic events way beyond anyone's control just happen for reasons we don't understand. But when we know the Father, I mean really know the Father, we know that He is good beyond imagining. And we know that He loves us and that never falters, that never flickers, that never changes. And we know that He has a plan and His plan even takes into account bad stuff. His plan will overcome the bad stuff and use it in ways that can accomplish good things. This is an example of perhaps the greatest, uh, just the greatest evidence of him doing that, taking something that was awful, something that was bad, the crucifixion of his own son, but causing the ultimate good to come out of it and to come through it. Does that all the time. The Apostle Paul knew this personally in his own life. The Apostle Paul, who experienced all kinds of bad things, floggings, imprisonments, stoning, shipwrecks, all just because he was telling people about Jesus, because he was trying to do good, right? 
The Apostle Paul said this, familiar words to most of you. We know that in all things God works for the good of those who love Him. Even when you're being flogged, even when you're in prison, even when a stoning occurs, even when your ship sinks. God causes all things to work for the good of those who love Him, who have been called according to His purpose. The Apostle Paul knew that bad things happening did not equal God punishing you. Doesn't work that way. Because you see, God, in fact, has already punished His Son, Jesus, in your place. Good news of the gospel. And all of that actually frees me up if I process it, if I live in it, if I digest it and let it affect me. That frees me up from living angrily. That frees me up from being in that place where it's, you know, I, I'm not getting what I deserve. It frees me up. You see, intimate relationship with the Father is the solution to the elder brother's problem of anger every time. Does that make sense? If it doesn't, I can't do any better. So anyhow, we'll move on to another symptom. Another symptom of the elder brotherism is hatred. I don't know if you noticed when we read the story earlier on, uh, but the elder brother hates detests, despises what the father says to him. Did you see how he characterized him? Characterizes the father's communication to him as orders. And so he's slaving all the time, right? In verse 29, I have been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. I sense that there's resentment there. There's uh, hatred beneath the surface. He'd acted like all he wanted to do was please the father, but in reality, apparently, he viewed the father's requests like they were shouted orders and commands. He'd not been obeying the father because he loved the father, because he wanted to serve the father, because he respected the father, was in uh, fellowship and community and relationship with the father. And here's the thing. Elder brothers on the outside may be obeying and following orders better than any other family members. But the real problem is what's on the inside. The real problem and concern has to do with motivation. Why did they do what they do? That's always a big issue. It's a big issue for all of us. You see, if you've discovered that the Father really is good, if you've experienced that, then you know what? You really do want to obey Him. It's an amazing thing. You believe that If you believe that the Father's words and the, are, are, are wise and, and give guidance, you will want to follow them. That's how this works. Um, you will come to the place where you will view what the Father says to you as something wonderful. Well, you will view that what He gives in terms of guidance is actually lovely. It's actually good for you and your life to follow and to obey. In fact, you kind of think the way the psalmist thought. In Psalm 1, the psalmist is talking about the man who is happy, the individual, the person who is blessed. And he says, that person delights in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He can't get enough of the law, the word, the scriptures in his life. He wants the wisdom. He wants the guidance from God. Or like Psalm 119, I delight in your commands because I love them. I've come to learn that what you tell me, Father, is actually always the best thing for me. You know, the elder brother can't say that. The elder brother obeys the father when it serves his purpose and when it helps him get something he wants. In this story, he wants the estate. In this story, he wants his inheritance. And in this story, I think you can safely say he really wants the father out of the way. And he's quite certain he has earned it. 
So just get out of the way, Father. But again, when you understand the gospel, something as simple as the gospel, when you come to see the Father's goodness, when you see how he feels about you, when you see what he's done for you, it really does change the human heart. You begin to love the Father for who he is, not just what he can give you, not what you think he owes you. And so now your obedience becomes something that's actually heartfelt. You love his law. You know it's for your good, and you do delight in it. You obey him out of love, and you're not a slave taking orders anymore. You're a beloved son and a beloved daughter, a beloved child of God. So, first symptom of elder brotherism, anger. The antidote is Jesus' gospel. The gospel is the antidote. Second symptom, uh, being that you don't really love the words of the Father. They feel like orders. They feel like commands. They feel like laws. And so you feel like a slave always having to obey them. You resent them, but you'll obey them because you want something. The antidote to living with that kind of mindset, the antidote to practicing that kind of religion, again, the gospel, Jesus' gospel. Here's a third symptom of elder brotherism. And I don't have a clever way of saying it. It's it's just, it's a complete lack of understanding the father. You just don't get him. Notice the elder brother has no clear sense of how much he matters to the father. Hasn't dawned on him. It's never sunk in. It's never broken the hard surface. And therefore, there's no joyful assurance in the life of this elder brother. He's not sure at all that the father loves him and that he matters to the father. Notice that the elder brother says, you never gave me even a goat. I guess goats were, you know, a notch down from the fattened calf and he's complaining, he's comparing. You never gave me even a young goat. But in verse 31, as we've seen over and over, he says to this son, my son, everything I have is yours. You get what he's saying there, right? I mean, everything I have is yours. Son, don't you know, you don't even need to ask. Everything I have is yours. He's saying the real problem, son, is you never want to celebrate. You never accept my love. You're always bitter. You're always resentful. You're always so judgmental. And the point is there is no dance. There is no celebration. There is no joy in the heart of the elder brother for the father or really for anyone, anyone else, as far as we can see. You know, this son never said, hey, dad, let's celebrate. Life is good. Oh, man, you are good. We've got so much to be thankful for. Let's party together. Underneath, not only does he not love the father, I think he's not at all sure that the father loves him. He's never taken time to think about this, to reflect on this. I even suspect he'd be afraid to ask. Again, the younger brother tried to get control of the father's things by, you know, taking off to a foreign land with his inheritance. The elder brother tries to get control of the father's things by staying home. But deep in his heart, he suspects, I think, that the father knows why he stayed home. It's to get the estate, you see. And again, there's no relationship. And I suspect this, this elder brother knows that the father knows there's no relationship. There's no joyful assurance of the father's love, and the father can clearly see that. It's like asking someone, you know, uh, if you've ever met somebody who's uh, come to faith in Jesus recently, and man, they're excited. Stuff is changing inside. 
they're learning new things about God, about themselves, about life, and so. And you uh, just happen upon that person, and you ask them the question, are, are you a Christian? And boy, they kind of light up. You know, it's like, yeah, man, you bet. There's joy, uh, there's delight, there's, there's just amazement. Yeah, you bet. The Father is so good. Jesus is so good. This is fantastic, knowing that he loves me, knowing that I'm forgiving. Just the best. Ask an elder brother sometime the same question. Are you a Christian? Well, of course I'm a Christian. Why are you asking? What are you insinuating exactly? Why would you ask me such a question? And the point is, no joy, no amazement, no delight, no celebration of the relationship, certainly no party, no party, precisely because there is no assurance or confidence in the Father's love. No confidence. And yet, ironically, elder brothers are very sure of where others stand. Not so sure about where they stand with the love of God. Not if they're honest. Because they never know if they've done enough performing, right? Maybe I just need a little, tighten it up a little bit in my religious obedience. But I'm not sure I've done quite enough. So there's not a good relationship there. But, uh, man, they are sure about where others stand. Notice when the prodigal brother comes home, the elder brother refers to him as this son of yours, right? Not my brother, this son of yours. The elder brother is sure that this younger brother of his is not welcome here, not welcome back, doesn't belong, shouldn't be here. And ironically, the elder brother who has no joyful assurance about his own relationship with the father, but boy, he is quick to judge and sure of his judgment about where others stand. And friends, my point is just this. <clears throat> when you understand Jesus' gospel, there's a joyful assurance. There's a peace that comes to and happens in a person's heart. Because when you look at yourself, sure, there's no denying it. I'm broken. I'm sinful. It's there. That's real. I can't deny it. But you know what Jesus has done for me? He's paid my penalty. He died on the cross to pay for my sin. He loves and he forgives me. He promises never to leave or never to forsake me. And you know what? There is the deepest sense in which I can relax in that. My performing is over. There's love and acceptance at the foot of the cross because of what Jesus has done. And so when I look at other people too, uh, I am free to be very gracious toward them as well. Uh, they may deny Jesus. They may deny God. They may deny the Father. Their life may indicate that they're making all the wrong decisions. They're headed for disaster. That may be the truth about them. But guess what? God is still God. And God is good. And God is patient. And God can work. After all, He worked in me. He brought me home. So there's hope for this person too as I pray for them. As I befriend them you know that means i don't have to condemn them i don't have to judge them i don't have to keep reminding them of every sin that they're committing i don't have to pressure pressure them i don't, I don't have to get them saved now <clears throat> what i'm not saying is that i mean there, there may be opportunities where it's just right for me to share my faith with that person they may actually ask as i befriend them as i care about them as i love on them it may be the normal thing for me just to share about my faith, my love, 
what I've discovered to be true. Here's the point. The gospel should make us non-judgmental toward others. Doesn't mean we call sin okay. Not saying that. That's another sermon. But it means we're very careful about how we interact with those who don't follow God. Don't know Jesus. Don't pretend to. I am not their moral thermometer, if you will, right? Boy, I thought of a great image, but I can't share it in the sermon. Anyway, um, the gospel should make us non-judgmental toward others. I mean, whether we like it or not, this is who Jesus is. And I admit, it bothers me, uh, probably us at times, but fact of the matter, he was a man who ate and drank with sinners. And it bothered people who thought they were pretty good not sinners, you know? Uh, he ate and drank with people who didn't agree with him, at least not yet. Remember the Pharisees' original complaint about Jesus? It's back in chapter 15, verse 2. This man welcomes sinners and he eats with them. He has fellowship with them. He sits in hospitality with, with them. Jesus welcomes sinners. And, and so baseline, I think, that if we follow Jesus and follow him well, there is some sense, too, in which we welcome sinners. I'm, I'm just noting, I guess, that, you know, there's a certain exclusivity about elder brothers. They want to exclude those that they perceive are less good than they are. Part of that comes from the fact that they haven't understood how bad they are, right? But they want to exclude. They would say, you know, if I was going to have a party, I would only invite my worthy friends, what I'm saying is that the gospel of Jesus Christ frees us up from that. There's something else in this story that's kind of intriguing. Uh, you know, the father has the fattened calf killed, uh, as you know. Some commentators point out that that's a lot of food. I mean, this is not like, you know, slice some ham. Of course, they're Jews. They wouldn't do that. But, you know, I mean, slice, you know, the fattened calf. You know, we're going to make some sandwiches. No, no, no. Killing the fattened calf is a feast for probably more people than are here right now. And the point that some commentators make is this is probably an indicator that the party uh, up at the house is likely going to be for the whole town. I mean, the whole town's been invited. Come join the party. My son is back. We are going to have a great time, and everybody is invited. Even those who thought that the father was a bad dad because he had a bad son. Even those that thought the father was a fool for taking the bad son back into the family uh, this, this son who had publicly humiliated him, right? And the point is just once again, here's a, another glimpse into the heart of the father, into the, the magnitude, the graciousness of inviting these sinners, if you will, to the party. And I would just say, you know, that if we want to follow Jesus, if we really get what he has done for us, i.e. the gospel, then we, in some way, shape, or form, become like him. We, some way, shape, or form, we, we welcome others, even people who don't know him, without trying to make them like us because they don't yet know him, you see. If you get why Jesus left heaven, if you get why he suffered, if you get why he died, if you get why now he forgives you, if you really get that, then you become gracious, too in dealing with others. 
And I'll just admit, it's not always easy to figure out what being gracious looks like in a given particular context. That can get messy sometimes. But we should always be wrestling with it, trying to figure out what it looks like to show the grace of Jesus Christ to others. Jesus and his gospel are our only antidote to elder brotherism. That's, in fact, what this meal is all about. You know, Jesus did all that he did because you and I really, frankly, are lost. We're not good law keepers. We stink. We are lost. We are, in fact, prodigals, and we are, in fact, elder brothers, some of both in us. And Jesus wants us to come home, each and every one. He wants us to come up to the house and join the party and celebrate. And what it means by that is just go deeper in our relationship with the Heavenly Father. Love Him more. Appreciate Him more. Embrace the gospel more. Bottom line, I think Jesus is trying to teach us in these stories that self-righteousness is more of a hindrance to that happening than unrighteousness. Self-righteousness is the cause of so much us versus them, friends. Self-righteousness is the cause of so much religious oppression, so much racism, so much class warfare, uh, so much, you know, in terms of families breaking down and marriages splintering, so much judgmentalism, so much political division. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm, I don't think it's possible for Republicans to like Democrats or vice versa. That's certainly not possible. I mean, because, you know, everybody who's not in the party that I'm in is a fool and is, you know, stupid. And, you know, they're, I, they're so dumb, I can't believe they don't vote the way I vote and, you know, believe the things I believe. Yeah, pretty much that's it. (laughs) But you do understand that's the moral model in the political arena, right? No grace, no patience. I'm right, you're wrong, I'm good, you're bad, I'm acceptable, and you're not. Only Jesus and his gospel can free us from that kind of thinking and make us gracious people even people who are politically different than us. (laughs) You know, if you are like me as we've studied these stories, you have become painfully aware that you have much of the prodigal in you and much of the elder brother. And hopefully you have become just as aware, more aware, in fact, that you have a father who is recklessly gracious. And he dispenses his love and forgiveness recklessly at least that's the way it appears to us and that's understand that's what jesus wanted the pharisees and the teachers of the law to understand do you understand that in telling these stories he's not throwing down the gauntlet to hurt or injure the pharisees and the teachers of the law he's actually wanting them to understand something that would invite them into the love and the acceptance and the grace of the father so that they could love and accept others that's what's really going on here Jesus wanted them to understand that he had come to seek and to save the lost. That was them, the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, the prodigals. And that is us, all of us. We all need Jesus' life. We all need Jesus' death. We all need Jesus' resurrection. We all need a good, old-fashioned saving. That's what we need. Every one of us. We all need to come home, come up to the house and celebrate. 
And here's the incredible thing, <laughs> absolutely incredible to me. Um, Jesus would underline at, mom- at times, at moments in his teaching, uh, how it made the father feel when a prodigal did come home or when an elder brother um, came up to the house to celebrate. Jesus said this in Luke 15. He said, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent or think they need to repent. That's, that, that's, that's mind-boggling that that is true. Celebrations in heaven over you and over me repenting, over us coming to the Father. You know, I, I look at this uh, sacrament that we partake of together, and it's just so interesting. Always when I think about this, or when I reflect on it, that what we have in the sacrament uh, is a meal, a meal of hospitality. It's something that Jesus invites us into relationship with the very symbols of this sacrament. He could have given us something else, some other sacrament that could have just simply reminded us of our unworthiness, reminded us strictly of how we don't deserve his goodness, remind us strictly and solely of our badness, if you will. He gives us a sacrament that reminds us of both. We are broken. Our blood should be shed. But lo and behold, instead it's, it's Jesus' body that is broken in our place, in our stead. And it's Jesus' blood that is shed. for us, for the remission of sin. It's remarkable. And he says, come to the table, feast on me, come know my peace, come know my provision, come know how much the Father rejoices. That's the meal that we get to partake of here. And we invite you to come to this table if you know Jesus, if you have faith in Jesus, if he is the one in whom you trust to save you. Uh, if you don't, then I would encourage you to put your faith and your trust in Jesus. He wants you to come to the party. Come to the meal. He died for you so that you could do that, so that your sins could be forgiven. And we embrace his gift simply by faith and trust. Um, if you're not in that place and you're still processing all that stuff, then, you know, I, I would encourage you uh, to stay in your seat. You don't have to come to the table. Um, keep processing. Keep thinking. Keep reflecting. Um, I'm going to ask those who are going to serve us to come forward. And as they do, I'm going to pray and we'll set apart these elements for their purpose. And, uh, and then we'll celebrate the Lord's Supper. Father God, we